Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you aren't receiving my weekly email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. And don't forget that Unchained and Unconfirmed are now on YouTube. You can go subscribe there to be alerted to all the latest episodes of both podcasts. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Jacob Franek, co-founder and COO of Coinmetrics. Welcome, Jacob. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Daily transaction fees on Ethereum are overtaking those on Bitcoin. What exactly are we seeing there? Yeah, it's a great question. So on September 15th, we saw the kind of total daily fees on Ethereum surpass Bitcoin. And we wrote about this in our newsletter. I want to give a shout out to Nate Madry, who's our, our head of research and, and, and our newsletter team. Um, but it's important important for us to kind of clarify what we mean by by daily fees. So here we're talking about the cumulative sum of all of the fees across all transactions in the day. And that's important to distinguish between kind of the individual or mean fee per transaction. That's something we'll we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, But fees are important because they're kind of an indicator of overall usage and demand. So the higher demand for something, the, the more people are willing to pay for something. And fees kind of combine two important metrics. So they combine, you know, the transaction count and the fee per transaction. And so it gives you a nice kind of holistic measure of demand and allows you to, to get a sense of kind of overall usage of, of these different chains. Now, this is actually not the first time that, that fees on Ethereum have surpassed fees on Bitcoin. Um, for a few months in 2018, actually, th- this was the case um, for, for more than, a you know, um, for, for most of that period, actually. Um, but I think what happened in 2019 is we saw a large separation between Bitcoin, um, where fees really surpassed Ethereum. And then only recently has there been a, a sharp decline in fees on Bitcoin and a sharp rise on Ethereum. And I think it, um, you know, maybe that has led to the community kind of noticing this and starting to talk about it on Twitter. Um, and there's a lot of kind of potential interesting reasons for that. And so before we go into those reasons, I'm just curious, you know, you said that this can me- this is a number that represents both um, total number of transactions as well as the amount of the fees. And it, so is it both that are rising or is like one of them really kind of the main cause for this? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, fees themselves, the, the actual price or, or the fee per transaction is, is somewhat set by the market, right? And that really depends on on market conditions. It depends on, you know, really whether the chain's full and, and kind of some of those dynamics. I think what's driving it is probably more so the transaction counts in this case. And in particular, what we've seen is is um, the rise of Tether, you know, the meteoric rise of Tether on Ethereum and somewhat the decline of Tether on Omni. 
And so Omni is this kind of, um, you know, second or, or separate layer protocol that's actually built on top of Bitcoin. And every transaction on Omni is actually a transaction on Bitcoin. And we've seen, you know, just over the last you know, month or so, a kind of sharp decline in, in the transactions on Omni of Tether. You know, Tether is this, this stable coin. And we've seen a, a real meteoric rise going back to April of this year on Ethereum to the point where transactions of Tether on Ethereum are now 25% of all transactions on, on the Ethereum network. And at a time, you know, Tether was about 15% or more of the transactions on, on the Bitcoin network. And so that shift of, uh, from, from, of Tether from, you know, uh, from Bitcoin or, or Omni to Ethereum um, has kind of probably been partly the, the, the cause of this difference in fees. And is it that the number of Tether transactions? So, well, wait. So, just to be clear, there's basically now two versions of Tether: one that is on this Omni layer of the Bitcoin network, and one that is on Ethereum. Yeah, there's actually more. Um, there's actually a version on EOS. There's a version on Tron, and I believe there's a version on Algorand. There's also a Euro version that is that is on Omni, and I think um, launching on Ethereum was is already launched. So, there's a few different versions. Um, the Ethereum version actually launched in 2017, um, but basically was flat for almost two years. And it's unclear why or what has led to the, this kind of shift, but it, it all of a sudden woke up in, in April of 2019 and has just been exponentially increasing ever since. Um, whereas you've seen a reduction in, you know, transactions on, on the, uh, the Bitcoin network or on, on, on Omni. Um, there may be a few different reasons for that. Some think that it's due to, um, you know, a quicker kind of confirm or fewer confirmation times. And so traders that are performing arbitrage might prefer it. Tether on Ethereum is also an ERC20 token. And so there's a lot of kind of network effects and just um, good infrastructure, wallet infrastructure, other, you know, the, the, the option to interact with other smart contracts and other kind of DeFi potential, you know, applications. That might be part of it as well. It's not entirely clear to me why why that rise has happened. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, the block size on Ethereum has always been shorter. So I don't understand why suddenly in April, people would be like, Oh, like, whoa, the blocks, the block times on, on Ethereum are so much shorter. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, why? Yeah. In, do you, like in April, I don't, I don't understand how that would be connected. Um, And then, yeah, anyway. Huh? Okay, so I wonder, I, like, I'm just blanking on when the news came out about the New York Attorney General's charges against Tether. Do you know if that, I think that was later, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was, um, I don't have the date in front of me. I think it was after April. And I think your question is a good one in the sense of, you know, why, why then? And I, I don't have a great answer to it, you know, other than, you know, the, the few things that I've suggested. The fees on, on Ethereum are also, the individual fees to transact are also lower. Um, so it's possible that, um, you know, certain, uh, you know, high frequency traders or others that, that kind of make a lot of trades and, and the individual fee cost is important for them. You know, that might have started it too. But why it was so dramatic and, and came out of nowhere is, is really hard to explain, at least for, for me at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, because the other thing that you suggested about the DeFi movement is that's been around for a while. too. I mean, granted, obviously, it's been super small. And so maybe it was just in April when kind of a critical mass heard about it. Um, you know, it, I mean, granted, that is relatively new. It's not like brand new or it wasn't brand new in April, but it was relatively new then. So, yeah. hmm, okay. All right. Well, maybe if if I 
kind of suss out what what the cause is in another episode. I'll I'll try to explain that. So one other thing is that I noticed in the analysis you guys released that the usage of gas on Ethereum, uh, you know, traditionally has been for like Ether transactions, um, Tether ERC-20, and then ERC-721, which ERC-20 is like, you know, the different tokens on Ethereum, ERC-721 is the non-fungible tokens. But those transactions have actually declined compared to the demand for gas for other types of contracts. And you guys have this like great little graphic showing that, but I didn't know, like when you say other types of contracts, like what, what's an example of some of those other kinds of contracts? Yeah. So, um, it, it, great question. And, and what we've seen basically is a, is a large increase. And, and if you look actually across all the whole history of Ethereum and you look at kind of the gas used per transaction, what you see is just a, a steady rise up and to the right, which is indicating that transactions on Ethereum are getting more complex. You know, essentially they're requiring more gas per transaction. And so a very simple operation on, on the Ethereum virtual machine, like sending, you know, Ether to, um, to and from a certain wallet is, is, it has a low cost. But as you start to interact with more complex contracts, those have a larger gas cost and, and depending on the gas market will, will tend to have, um, higher fees. And so, you know, I, I think part of this is, is due, you know, specifically to the rise in DeFi or other applications. There's also gambling applications and, and you, you kind of see a lot of these interesting, you know, I don't want to necessarily call them Ponzi applications, but sometimes they, they, they very much look like that, um, that, that have more complex contracts and that require, you know, more gas in general. It, it's hard to say. I haven't kind of done a deep dive into exactly which contracts are rising in that kind of other, you know, non-ERC, non-ERC-20, non, um, ERC-721 bucket. Um, but I suspect it's largely due to um, the rise in DeFi and just more complicated contracts, things like MakerDAO and, um, you know, synthetics and a lot of these other kind of um, interesting applications. And one thing I also wanted to ask was, you know, obviously when you look at this graphic, of which I'll, I'll try to put in the show notes of the uh, transactions on Bitcoin versus Ethereum, the transaction fees on Bitcoin versus Ethereum. It really feels like it's more about the dramatic drop in transaction daily transaction fees on Bitcoin rather than it is. I mean, you can see that there is this, you know, very kind of slow and gradual rise on Ethereum. But um, I wondered, like, you know, is part of the drop on Bitcoin because there are more transactions migrating to layer two? Do you know what I'm saying? That like we yeah. can't see? Yeah, it, it could be a part of that. I mean, my understanding of Lightning is that the, you know, the growth has been a little bit small. It is hard to tell because it is somewhat private. And if you're not running a node, you can't necessarily observe, you know, what's happening on the network. Um, I think if you look at the graph, though, of, of um, Bitcoin fees, you know, again, total daily fees, and you look at Tether transactions, the two actually follow one another quite closely. Um, and really in the last, um, you know, several months or so, you can see kind of this steady decline of, of Tether transactions that seem to coincide with the decline in fees. So um, Bitcoin is also increased its batching. So you can actually, you know, um, batch transactions and include more transfers per transaction. And you actually save a little bit on fees in that way as well. So it could be, you know, a few things coming together, Tether, it could be things moving to Lightning, it could be um, more, uh, particularly exchanges are, are batching, which is reducing 
the overall fees. Um, and then you are seeing a little bit of a rise in fees on, on Ethereum as well. And so those two things co coinciding could could be, um, you know, resulting in what we're seeing. Now, the big question is whether this is going to continue. And is this just a blip? You know, it's already kind of reverted. So Bitcoin over the last few days is is, is doing, you know, more in daily fees than, than Ethereum. Um, but what's interesting is on Ethereum, the, the miners have now been voting up the gas limit. And so effectively increasing Ethereum's block size by something like 12%. And Ethereum is a little bit different from Bitcoin in that it has a dynamic um, limit. It, it, you know, the gas limit sets the per block sets the kind of block size. It's not fixed byte size as it is on Bitcoin. And so miners can actually dynamically, incrementally in small steps, increase the, the, you know, the block size by voting up the gas limit. And so if they're doing that because the demand has been at the ceiling kind of for a while, um, it's possible that this trend will continue. And if Tether's growth continues as well, um, you know, soon, soon it might, uh, you know, soon we might get to a point where Ethereum's kind of continuously above Bitcoin. Um, and at that point, who knows, maybe Tether will continue to migrate, you know, more and more to EOS or, or um, some of these other chains. But, you know, all of that kind of remains to be seen. All right. So we're going to discuss a little bit more on this topic, as well as some of the differences in the various Bitcoin forks. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer -peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Jacob Franick. So one other thing that I was wondering about this, you know, Bitcoin versus Ethereum daily transaction fees, does the fullness of either chain affect the numbers? Meaning like, are these numbers less of a proxy of demand on both chains? If the fullness of the blocks on either chain is sort of preventing us from seeing like how much demand there really is or, or would be without that limit? Yeah, so the, the fullness of the chains really impacts, um, you know, both the transaction count and and the the, the price, right? And so as as blocks become full, you know, the demand for for block space becomes higher, and, and people start to you know start to you know raise the fees in order to get their transactions through. Um, you know, Ethereum in general processes at the moment about more than twice the the number of transactions that um, per day than Bitcoin. So even though the cost is a little bit lower, like the, the cost per transaction right now, at least the, the fee is, is a little bit lower. Um, just by the simple fact that it's processing so many more transactions, um, you know, the fees are fees are a little bit higher. But, you know, as that becomes full, definitely, you know, the, the fees are going to start to go up again. And so for Bitcoin, it's probably going to be correlated, you know, with the decline in, in Tether is probably going to be correlated more with price. And, and, you know, perhaps the next bull market, you're going to start to see again, um, fees starting to rise dramatically. It just depends really on demand and, and what, you know, what levers are, are, are being pulled there. I know there's also, you know, Veriblock transactions that are starting to fill up the Bitcoin chain. And so there's other things that might start to compete for block space that could result in, in more fees. 
Okay, so that's actually the perfect segue to our next discussion about like the different Bitcoin forks. But so why don't we just briefly, can you just describe what Veriblock is? Yeah, I'm actually not um, super familiar with Veriblock. And I, I know that it's a way of kind of finalizing things from another chain or storing data. I unfortunately haven't spent myself personally um, too much time digging into it. So uh, I don't have a great answer for you there. Okay. Well, so, you know, you guys did do this analysis on Bitcoin and the various forks. What factors did you guys look at and what were your findings? Yeah. So Coinmetrics wrote a a research piece about um, Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin SV versus Bitcoin. And the genesis of this was actually um, a legacy asset manager who wanted to enter into a position into Bitcoin. And they were having some internal debates about, you know, which Bitcoin to enter in. Um, And some of your, you know, Listeners might think of that's kind of silly or, or that it should be obvious, but obviously if you're entering into the space, um, you know, fairly nascent or you haven't been in the space a long time, it can be a little bit confusing. And w- what's important to kind of, you know, tease this, um, tease this out was trying to identify what the value proposition of these different coins were and then how did that relate to things that we were seeing on chain. And so Bitcoin Cash forked from Bitcoin as part of a, you know, block size debate. And proponents of Bitcoin Cash believe that Bitcoin was increasingly becoming a store of value um, and not a medium of exchange, the latter of which they thought was kind of more aligned with the, the original purpose of, of Bitcoin. So BCH forged, uh, forked or Bitcoin Cash or BCH forked and increased the block size from one megabyte to 32. And then BSV later forked from BCH. So Bitcoin SV, Satoshi's vision, later forked from Bitcoin Cash and further increased the block size to 128 megabytes and then also reduce the restrictions on storing data so that, you know, you could store kind of more data on the chain itself. And I think the quote was, you know, to unshackle the, the data storage use case. Um, so this was kind of the pretense that we, we entered into this, um, you know, research piece trying to understand, okay, these are the different value propositions. And then how does that actually align with what we see on chain? Um, and in order to do that, we looked at kind of three different analyses. So one was what we call the medium of exchange analysis to look at, you know, transactions, fees, transfer volume, you know, see these different indicators that would look at how, you know, whether these coins were being used more as a store of value or more as a medium of exchange. Um, we also looked at the block size. And then finally, we looked at a security analysis, looking at hash rate, minor revenue and a few other things. And so what what did you find in terms of how they are being used? Yeah. So starting with the kind of medium of exchange analysis, um, you know, we saw that fees are indeed lower on on Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. Right. So, you know, they wanted to increase the block size. And by increasing the block size, you can you know, you increase the through, throughput and, and potentially lower fees. Right. Um, so we did see that, you know, in fact, the, the I think the median fee was almost zero on both Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. Um, but really, that was driven just because of uh, by little usage of, of either chain. So there was far fewer transactions on both chains compared to Bitcoin. There was far fewer active addresses and, and a lower overall transfer volume. And interestingly, um, Bitcoin SV was predominantly being used as a way to record data on chain. So something like 94% plus of all transactions contained an op return code which is essentially the way of, of storing, you know, just storing data on the chain and, and not actually doing anything economic. So not actually transferring units of, of Bitcoin SV. And a majority of those 94%, so 94% of them are being used to store data only. And a majority of those were coming from a single weather application. So a single weather app um, was storing, you know, weather data on chain. 
Um, and so when we wrote this piece, we kind of tweeted that out and, and, and the community, um, you know, kind of took that and ran with it and, and thought it was pretty interesting um, because that's something that just doesn't come out when you're just looking at a kind of raw transaction counts. And so, um, you know, there is a potential that with bigger blocks and, and lower fees that Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV could be used more as a medium of exchange, but we just aren't seeing it yet today. I mean, there's far fewer transactions and uh, and so on. And so what is the purpose of putting weather data on BSV? Yeah, my sense is just to, you know, enter it into an immutable blockchain. Uh, you know, I'm not too familiar with the kind of value proposition of this application. I mean, I guess the idea is to have an immutable record of, of weather data and potentially somehow, you know, sell that through the block. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how, you know, the business model of that would work. Um, I don't know if there's a, a, an issue with, um, you know, fake weather or climate data. So I'm not sure what, what was the genesis. I don't know if this was just kind of testing it. Uh, I personally haven't dug too much into it, but um, I think the idea was just to have it on an immutable record so that there was a historical record of the weather for that day. Well, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, also, I think he tweeted, I can't remember, he might have tweeted that he thought maybe be a Bitcoin Cash and BSV should be used as data storage for other blockchains. Does it look like that's kind of already happening or or no? Is is it really just this one app? Yeah, I don't think um, th- there's too much evidence of other blockchains yet storing data on on um, Bitcoin or so on. I believe actually that's somewhat what Veriblock is doing as, in, in terms of kind of storing hashes from another chain on, on and using Bitcoin security. Um, but we haven't really seen that across other chains uh, I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, obviously, you know, there's only so much block space. There's only so much um, information that you can store on Bitcoin or, or, or so on. And so, um, you know, some other chains might look to store maybe hashed or other kind of, you know, condensed versions of information on, on these kind of more secure chains. Um, I think it's an interesting idea. I just I'm not sure what the demand for the market is. I'm still somewhat a, you know, money maximalist in the sense that, you know, for me, the most interesting thing about public blockchain so far is the money and, and kind of related applications. Um, so I'm not sure there's a strong, you know, use case yet out there. But, you know, Vitalik's floated kind of different ideas like, um, you know, diplomas and, and things like that, storing kind of those kind of immutable records where we're having a permanent record of something on chain might be useful. And, but like, if you do that, how does that affect the crypto economics? Like, will the chain be secure enough? Like, is it really then just, you know, the miners earn their block reward? And I, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, will the value of the coin be enough that the whole thing will work out? And and the chain will be secure. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the long-term questions. And that's one of, I think, one of the things that led to Bitcoin SV, you know, forking from Bitcoin Cash, you know, was this idea that they wanted to store additional information on chain, things like invoices and, um, you know, things that don't are probably part of an economic transaction. But what we're seeing is even non-economical things being stored on the chain. And to your point, I mean, what's the, you know, is that really going to, be enough to confer value and and um, and and help keep the chain secure. And in fact, when we looked at our kind of security analysis, I mean, Bitcoin's hash rate, you know, dominates that of, of Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin Cash. And in fact, when Bitcoin SV forked from Bitcoin Cash, it, it effectively split its hash rate in half and weakened it even further. And um, so, you know, hash rate's one thing, and then you look at the overall miner revenue. And similarly, Bitcoin kind of dominates both of those. Now, obviously, all of that is driven to some degree by demand. 
Uh, and so it's possible that this will change in the future. But you can imagine if, um, you know, if Bitcoin is paying it for its security, you know, through through minor revenue, um, multiple, you know, many multiples more than these other chains, it's just going to attract a larger um, you know, market of, of hash rate. And so it, it, it seems it's going to be quite challenging for these other chains, um, you know, without having a kind of clear use case or, or clear demand um, to compete long term because the hash rate is just so, you know, the, the, the value of what you can earn on those chains as a miner is just so much smaller. And, and last quick question before we hop off, but I was just curious, does it look to you like either of these chains will ever be used as a medium of exchange? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's still the jury's out. It, it, it's still quite a bit early, right? So the, the, the for, these forks have only happened recently. Um, but, you know, I'm somewhat of a, of a store of value maximalist myself in the sense that, you know, people have to accept a currency, right? There has to be um, for, for, for a currency to be used as a medium of exchange, somebody else has to want to keep it, right? It has to want to hold it. And so it, it, it's hard in my mind to um, have a chain or, or have an asset become valuable if its only use cases is a medium of exchange. And, and if you look back in, in over monetary history, you know, these things kind of evolve in different ways. Um, but typically there's something that drives the kind of, um, you know, wanting people wanting to hold it, right? Something intrinsic to the asset has to be there in order for there to be enough demand for somebody else to accept it. And that's kind of where you, you lean a little bit more on the store of value use case first. Um, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of different models. You know, Grin is trying to be, you know, highly inflationary and, and trying to win that kind of medium of exchange use case. I'm just not convinced, you know, without a strong intrinsic, you know, or set of strong intrinsic properties that there's enough impetus there for, you know, someone else to want to accept it. But it's still as early and, and you know, perhaps that some of these data storage kind of use cases or applications might find, um, we might find a niche or, or, you know, that killer app might emerge. Um, I'm a little skeptical, but I, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a little too hard to say at this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we always say, it's still early days. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Laura. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Rich Straffolino, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening.